Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. God's holy word. Give your attention to the reading of it. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So we finally made it to the moment. This is the three hours that changed the world forever, the death of our Savior. The ages that came before look forward to this point in time, and the centuries of history that follow gaze back at this 180 minutes. We do play lip service to this event continually. Jesus died for our sins. Christ was crucified. We sing this, pray this, and share it with others. Indeed, we are more than familiar with the cross of Christ. And yet being fully acquainted with something often reduces our perception. It can dull our observation. You've eaten your morning cereal a thousand times, thus you don't pay attention to its finer flavors. Wearing your shoes every day, you don't notice how much they faded. And so our over-familiarity with the cross can sedate us to its mystery. It can numb us, numb us to its horrors and its wonders. We become desensitized to its profundity. Well, we may be in the season of Advent, and yet Jesus was born to die. He became man for the cross. Thus, it's good for us to deepen our sensitivity by spending some time in the darkness that covered the land from noon till three. So around the third hour of the day, or 9 a.m., the soldiers reached Golgotha and strung our Lord up upon his wooden frame. And for the next few hours, the peanut gallery had its way with Jesus, heckling him and throwing rotten slurs at him. The travelers laughed at him as the temple destroyer and rebuilder. The priest taunted him to save himself. The scribes baited him to come down so that they may believe in him. Even his fellow partners in crucifixion abused Jesus with their blasphemy. Well, the comedy or cruel comedy competition seems to be waning as the clock strikes high noon. The sun has reached its highest point. Its rays are burning at their maximum strength. Or at least this would be so 
if this was just another day. But there is nothing usual about this day as it is dark. At midday, the sun has been switched off. An eerie darkness blankets the land. Now, our curiosity wonders, is this an eclipse? Have pitch black storm clouds cut off the sun? But such questions take us in the wrong direction. It matters not how God formed this darkness. It isn't even that important if the darkness is only over Judea or the greater part of the world, though the text does imply more so just the land of Israel. No, the significance of this noontime shadow hails not from nature, but from the Old Testament. Thus, with this language, Mark alludes to Exodus chapter 10 and the ninth plague of darkness over Egypt. And that pitch black hovering over the face of Egypt was the tangible expression of God's wrath and judgment. The impenetrable darkness was the presence of the Lord's fury and curse against wickedness. Thus, the shadow of death became one of the standard features of the day of the Lord. When the Lord marched in the terror of his anger, the sun fails. The moon goes out and the stars are blown out like birthday candles. And the Lord wraps himself in darkness and enshrouds himself in black shadow. As the prophet said over and over, the day of the Lord is a day of wrath, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. Likewise, this suffocating shadow was part of the curse of the covenant. Under the darkness of God, sinners would grope at midday like a blind man at night. This miraculous pitch black then marks the day of judgment. It is the descent of the Lord's fury swallowed in black shadow. Light was the first of God's creation. Light is the first ingredient for life on this planet. But at high noon... This light is taken from Jesus. A star sparkled brightly in the night sky at the birth of Jesus. And yet as he nears his death, there are no stars. The moon is cloaked and the sun gives no light. The wrath of God covers the land as if this is the end of all things created. Yet after enduring the dark night for three hours, our Lord can hold his silence no longer. As you know, if you spend a significant amount of time in a really dark place, your sanity begins to fray. In the absence of sight, you need to use your voice, your ears. Well, the darkness laying upon Jesus' soul is blacker than the day, and so his senses need some different stimuli. Thus he utters the cry that was heard from the towers of heaven to the dungeons of Sheol. And Mark hallows Jesus' agonizing scream by leaving it untranslated in his birth language of Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Sure, he does give us a rendering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet there is depth in this shout that is lost in translation. For sure, we know the pain of being deserted by a loved one. 
To be abandoned by a beloved parent wounds and damages you for life. But this forsakenness of Christ delves further down the rabbit hole of pain. For in the Old Testament, there's practically a theology of forsakenness. For one, in the covenant, the Lord promised to never forsake his people. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God swore never to abandon them, but to be with them always. The psalmist sings, the Lord will not forsake his people. In Psalm 37, it says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Likewise, it says, the Lord does not forsake those who seek him or call upon his name. For the Lord to be among his people and to never leave them was the diamond promise of the covenant. Secondly, where God doesn't abandon, the greatest apostasy of the people was to forsake the Lord and his covenant. As they went out after other gods, they deserted him by spiritual adultery. When Israel trampled over the law with its boots of disobedience, they forsook the Lord who made them and redeemed them. The most heinous rebellion of the people was to forsake the Lord. This was the pinnacle of wickedness and depravity. And so, in the perfect justice of the covenant, for those who forsook the Lord, he too would forsake. The ultimate curse of the covenant was not so much death as it was to be forsaken. Thus, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 do not end with the extinction of Israel, but with them back in Egypt, begging to be bought as slaves, but no one will buy them. They are left without God and without hope in the world. This is why we read Lamentations 2, which is a description of the final curse of the covenant. And there the Lord abandoned his people by coming in wrath, raising in fire, consuming all the round and spurning law and Sabbath. Particularly, as it says, he abandoned his people by acting like a foe. He became the enemy of his people and resolved to destroy. He ruined his people without mercy and giving no respite. Thus, when our Lord cries out in the torment of being forsaken, these are the pains he is feeling. He is not being stiff-armed by a friend or ghosted by a lover. No, this is the full dose of the covenant curse for sin. It's the whole tank of holy fury. Our Lord is being stabbed in places that cannot be seen by the eye with the reversal of the covenant promises. The psalmist said he'd never seen the righteous forsaken. But here it is happening to Jesus. The psalmist, or the promise was that the Lord would not abandon those who call upon him. Well, Jesus prays, and it is not heard. Jesus' devotion was pristine. Unlike wicked sinners, Jesus had never sinned by forsaking God. Indeed, he cries out twice, my God. This is a call of love, loyalty, and commitment. 
The slightest wink of infidelity never touched any part of Christ's heart, soul, or mind. Moreover, the father forsaking the son wasn't him being an absent father. Instead, the father is actually intensely present in this hour of abandonment. Beloved, this is a mystery so profound, it chills the soul. During these dark three hours, God was the most present and the most absent at the same moment. Wrapped in darkness, the Father was present as a foe and absent as a friend. He was there in wrath and gone in love. His tenderness was hidden and his ruin was revealed. The light of mercy covered and the blackness of destruction unveiled. The unity between the Father and the Son was hidden, and loneliness stabbed like a cold blood, a blade. As Jesus became sin for us, the Father poured the eternal torment of hell all over the Son. The agony of our Savior was not just that he did not feel God, but that he felt the burning justice of God as an enemy in the deepest parts of his person. Oh, the horrors, the wonders, and mysteries of this dark ninth hour. It is eternal judgment compressed into a moment of time. It is the righteous Son becoming sin, and the father becoming a foe to his son. And all of this for your salvation. It's nearly too hard to even say, this for us? No way. This moment is so terrible and so wonderful, let all earth keep silent. But where words fail us, The bystanders feel no such reverence. Instead, like barking dogs, they defile this time with their profane voices. Behold, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come take him down. And the tone of these is pure insult and mockery. For they make a pun off of Jesus' cry. Eloi sounds like Elijah. As you know, puns are the lowest form of humor, and cheap jokes make the best verbal abuse. And this mockery cuts in two directions. First, they deny Jesus' prayer to God. They say there's no way God would hear him. Jesus knows he can't pray to God, and so he only begged the glorified saint for help. He is so pathetic that Jesus can only practice necromancy. Our Lord's intense prayer of intimacy, they label as ancestor worship. Secondly, they posit that Elijah is Jesus' only hope for getting down. Like the previous taunts, they equate salvation with coming off the cross, and they foolishly think that this is what Jesus is praying for. Yet our Lord's cry is not a petition to get down. Instead, it is him testifying that he is draining the cup of wrath down to its dregs. 
Though there is also irony here. The scorn, or they scorn him to uh, wait for Elijah. But we know that Elijah's already arrived. The great Elijah figure, who was the forerunner, was John the Baptist. He was the voice crying in the wilderness to herald the coming of the Lord. But what happened to John? He was arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded. John, the Elijah, was executed in a way that's not too different from Jesus here. As Jesus said back in chapter 9, Elijah will come to restore all things so that the Son of Man must suffer many things. This means John's ministry as the Elijah was the sign for the death of Jesus. The people tease that Elijah would come and stop our Lord's suffering. But in reality, he already came to prepare and foreshadow Jesus for his death. There is, however, one more element to their abuse. One of the chuckling bystanders runs and gets a, gets a sponge of vinegar. What is translated here as sour wine is vinegar which, as you know, is wine turned sour and into vinegar. Now, vinegar is not alcoholic, and it was used as a condiment for food, a nice dip for your bread. But it could also be employed as torture. Maybe you've tried the tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in the morning for, quote, good health. Well, if you have, you know how harsh it is, and this would have been ten times worse on a parched throat. Thus, they give Jesus a sharp draft to turn up his pain as if to bait Elijah. If Jesus squirms more, maybe this will tease Elijah to come off the bench to help. Moreover, Jesus drinks. He doesn't refuse the vinegar as he did with the wine, but he takes a sip. He swallows that acidic and sour liquid. Why? Why would he reject the wine and accept the vinegar? Well, he does to fulfill scripture. He could not drink the wine in order to obey the law for the priest. But vinegar was not forbidden for the priest. Likewise, this phrase is allusion to Psalm 69, they gave me gall for food, vinegar to quench my thirst. Jesus drinks to fulfill the sufferings ordained for him. He does not push away that sponge of pain, but he accepts the full burden of agony of the day of the Lord judgment. Moreover, the vinegar seems to be the final straw. For as soon as he drinks, Jesus screams loudly and dies. He gives up his last breath. With the vinegar. Willingly, by his own choice, Jesus expires. He submits to the power of death and lets that great swallower of Sheol gulp him down. The curse of sin unleashed by Adam and Eve, Jesus now takes upon himself. Death, what every human has earned by their own sins, what we deserve for our crimes against heaven, Death, a great fear and nightmare for the living. The 
depicted as the horrifying grim reaper, death is the power assigned to the devil, which is like a chain whereby the evil one held all of humanity in lifelong slavery. The curse of God, the weapon of the evil one, death is the enemy to every boy and girl. It is what we deserve as sinners. But as the righteous one, Jesus was not properly under death. He didn't deserve it, but he nevertheless dies for us. The one who was stronger than death humbled himself to the sting of death. Fully God and fully man, Jesus died. The immortal one tasted mortality. In part, nothing could be more wrong. But in God's wisdom, nothing was more perfect. The guilt was all of ours, but the eternal pains of death were all Christ. This cost of grace seems to be too much to feel so right. The author of life died so that we dead might live. And so momental is the death of Christ that it cannot go unmarked. When something so earth-shaking, so unique happens, something so mysterious and radical that it tears at the fabric of the cosmos, heaven cannot remain silent. And so at the death of cry of our Lord, God responds. The veil in the temple is ripped asunder right down the middle. As Jesus dies outside the city upon Golgotha, the most holy curtain inside the temple is split in two. But why is this the miraculous sign that marks the death of Jesus? Well, the temple veil was made with the colors of heaven. It stood as the gate of heaven on earth that lay within the holy place and the holy of holies. Thus, the veil was the locked door to keep out all sinners. The veil barred Gentiles and all Hebrews. Only Aaron and his sons with blood and their holy vestments could pass through the veil. Likewise, the veil kept God locked inside. It kept God in and the people out. For if God broke out, he would consume the people in a plague. Thus, as long as the veil stood, it proclaimed that God and humans could not live together up close. The veil preached that full atonement for sin had not yet been made. The veil barred access to God save through the ironic priests. Thus, for the wall of separation to be shredded upon our Lord's death, this is heaven's vindication of Christ's righteous sacrifice. The ripped veil is the Father accepting Christ's death on our behalf to fling open the door of heaven for us. It announces the higher and better priesthood of Christ. The split veil tears down all the Old Testament hierarchy of priesthood and grants us the priesthood of all believers. We need no human priest or vicar, but we can draw near to God in heaven through Christ alone. 
Thus, the mangling of the veil marks the end of the old and the birth of the new. If the veil is ruined, so also all the rituals and ceremonies of the Mosaic sacrificial system expire. The ceremonial system of the law is laid to rest by the death of Christ and the slicing of the veil. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, now can all approach the throne of grace for unending mercy through faith. In Christ alone. Dear saints, you no longer need to bring a sacrifice or hire a priest. But freely by resting in Jesus, heaven is open for you. By passing through the day of the Lord darkness, by tasting the vinegar of being God forsaken, Jesus merited for you atonement and reconciliation with God in heaven forevermore. And it's yours through faith in Christ, which is actually witnessed for us here. As Jesus gives up the ghost with his last cry of agony, a centurion has a front row seat. The soldier feels the darkness of the hour. He sees the gruesome body of Jesus and he hears Christ's cries. And his response is to make the good confession. This man was the Son of God. Now, we cannot tell if this centurion speaks out of true faith. It's not clear what he understands by Son of God, if it's pagan or orthodox. Did he become saved or not? Mark does not clarify, for it isn't important. The whole time the bystanders have spoken here in this chapter, they've spoken ironically, accidental truth. They intended evil, but God used it for good. Thus, irrespective of the centurion's intention, he speaks the good confession as the high point of Mark's gospel. So far, only demons in hostility have addressed Jesus as the Son of God. The disciples believed in Christ, but they thought the cross was contradictory to him being the Son of God. The priests condemned Jesus for claiming to be the Son of God, and they killed him to prove him wrong. Everyone is kept separate as if polar opposites that should not touch the Son of God and the cross. These two should never meet, that is, until now. And this non-Jewish centurion sees the ghastly death of Jesus upon the cross under the darkness of wrath at high noon, and he announces, this is the Son of God. Therefore, his this good confession is the model for us. To the horrors and mysteries of the three dark hours, this should be our response of faith. Is this your confession, your trust, your confidence? Truly, we trust not in ourselves, for we despair of ourselves and anything in us for our salvation, and we cast ourselves wholly upon Jesus, who died as the Son of God. Yes, this is our believing profession. It's our only hope in this life and the next that Jesus died for us 
exactly and precisely as the Son of God. Let us then take this account of our Lord's death and may it strengthen your faith. May this word of the cross cause the cup of faith in you to overflow and evermore in love and in good deeds. And may the torn veil unleash in us joy and thanksgiving so that we might praise and worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was forsaken for us for our salvation, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.